Re-release Monday continues with the second webinar in our Emerging Therapies for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis in Children. This one is called Pediatric Atopic Dermatitis Algorithms for the Future. Just remember, October is Eczema Awareness Month, and if you are looking for resources for your patients, you can visit nationaleczema.org for many patient resources, or you can also send them to PEDRA, pedraresearch.org, for more information. To catch the video version of this webinar, just click the link in the show notes. Okay, greetings everyone, Larry Eichenfield here. So this is our second webinar in our uh, PEDRA virtual education uh, series on emerging therapies for moderate severe atopic dermatitis in children. And um, last week we had a, a, our first session uh, where we discussed um, some of the data sets on new systemic therapies and um, did um, so, and then heard a perspective on uh, uh, allergy perspective on systemic medicines and started our discussions on sort of how uh, management of uh, atopic dermatitis is changing. And tonight's seminar is called Algorithms of the Future. And we're gonna discuss also, we're gonna just start off by discussing um, new uh, topicals that are in uh, development um, and, um, and or recently approved, and then go on from there to have a, a discussion of how everything's gonna fit in, both with systemic medicine, and then uh, we have time set aside to discuss some, some hot, hot, issue, hot issues that we'll be facing in, in pediatric dermatology research. So Larry Eichenfield down at Radio Children's Hospital in UCSD. Uh, joining us uh, tonight, we'll start with the bottom right because Winnis will be leading, leading off the discussion. Winnis is a professor of dermatology and pediatrics, also the fellowship director at uh, Rady Children's Hospital, UCSD San Diego. And, um, and, and Dawn Davis will also be a featured speaker, She's professor of dermatology and pediatrics and division chair and uh, Director of Pediatric Durham at Mayo Clinic Rochester, also one of the two people along with Rob Sidbury who are chairing the new guidelines group for the AAD on atopic dermatitis. And uh, uh, Mega Tolleson, Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics and Consultant uh, uh, in Dermatology and Pediatric Adolescent Medicine, also at Mayo Clinic. And then Bob Gang will be uh, joining us. Uh, he's um, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics and Allergist at Rady Children's Hospital. Uh, he's co-director of our multidisciplinary Atopic Derm Center, as well as the Allergy Asthma Foundation sponsored severe asthma program and president of the San Diego uh, Derm uh, Allergy Society as well. So that's our crew for today. Um, disclosures, you can see a list. Uh, Dawn has none. I have a significant number that I'm consultant investigator on. Bob Gang served as a speaker consultant for several companies. Mega has been investigator for Pfizer and Winnis has been an investigator for multiple companies. Um, um, this um, series is actually, uh, we received an independent medical education uh, program through a competitive application process. So we thank Pfizer for the funding to PEDRA, but there's been no influence of content at all. We did what we wanted to do to discuss atopic dermatitis. So, we're solely responsible for the program content and for choosing this crew as a faculty. So um, uh, thank you. Oh, it looks like Mega's full professor. So yay, congratulations. That's it. <laughs> thank you, thank That's you everyone. 
So mom brings in her four-month-old for atopic derm, has applied 2.5% hydrocortisone with some improvement, but as soon as she stops it for a couple days, and of course the lesions start to come back, and mom is worried to keep using it. So she asked you, you know, are there other non-steroidal uh, options that are available? I'm sure we all face this in our clinic pretty much daily. Um, and the good thing is that we do now finally have one non-steroidal topical that's been approved for use in our infants. Next slide. And that's topical chrysoboral. So the approval was based on a phase four study, um, which was open label. So infants from three to 23 months of age were treated twice a day for 28 days. And the main study it was infants who had mild to moderate disease with at least 5% of their skin affected, excluding the scalp, mostly for the aesthetics. But there was a subset also included that had moderate disease over at least 35% of their skin, excluding the scalp in areas where they were worried um, that the, the child might put, put the, the, the ointment and get it into the mouth um, to do pharmacokinetic analyses um, with that. So overall, they enrolled 137 subjects. Um, on average, the age was about 13 months and they had had the disease for about 10 months. So on average, about uh, three months of age of onset. 40% um, of the kids were mild, about 60% were moderate, and then one severe patient got snuck in. Um, about half of the patients had used topical steroids previously, and except for a very small handful, none of them had used topical calcineurin inhibitors, since it is more difficult given off-label use. Next slide. So overall, in terms of the study, their primary endpoint was actually safety, um, to look to make sure that there were no major adverse events. Um, and in general, um, all treatment emergent adverse events, so any type of event, treatment related or not, were all mild to moderate, there were no major severe events. In terms of actual treatment-related um, adverse events, the biggest one seen, which is not that unexpected, was application site pain, which is about 3.5%, um, or uh, application site discomfort, about 3%. Some individuals had some more redness, and then about 6% had worsening um, or new atopic dermatitis lesions during the treatment period. Now of note, a small percentage also had worsening after the treatment period as well, um, which could be a reflection of actual response with it. Sorry, if we can go back a slide for one second. Okay. Um, but really only three subjects, so 2% actually stopped treatment as a result directly from um, either having application site pain or one had uh, infected dermatitis. So as a whole, most stayed in the study. And in terms of looking at safety, systemic exposure to chrysoboral was comparable to what we had seen in uh, older individuals. So even though the kids are younger and you're using it um, over a, a uh, uh, area uh, of age, um, they didn't have more absorption with it. And they also measured propylene glycol levels because um, propylene glycol is one of the constituents. Um, uh, and very, very high levels has, has been associated with neurologic or cardiovascular findings, so they did check this in case and none of the um, subjects had any uh, incidents related to this. Next slide. Uh, in terms of actual efficacy, so we look for the common uh, uh, criterion for success, which is that the global, the investigator severity global score goes down to clear or almost clear and it improves at least two grades um, by the time the 29-day period was finished, about 30% of patients reached that. If we look at those who just achieved clear, almost clear, 
um, with at least one grade improvement, which means some could start it off at, at, at mild and gotten to like uh, almost clear, for example, then close to 50% of these subjects did achieve that. And overall, if you look at the easy score, um, it decreased by about 55 to almost 60% um, from baseline. Um, next slide. Um, and then POEM in terms of looking at um, uh, patient reported outcomes, uh, all of the parameters did show some improvement. The ones that uh, parents answered that improved the most was uh, itch, uh, flaking, and dry and rough skin. Next slide. Uh, so overall, you know, the benefits of topical crisoboral ointment is the way it works is it's a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. So it uh, decreases inflammation, but it's not actually considered uh, immunosuppressive. So that's one benefit. Um, there's been no associated skin atrophy as well. And like I said, it does provide a non-steroidal uh, treatment for our young patients. But, you know, as seen in some of our older patients, there is some notable application site pain and discomfort. So, you know, I do think it's appropriate at times, depending on how red it is, to use topical steroids first to decrease the inflammation and then consider switching to this. Okay, next slide. But what about if the atopic dermatitis is more significant? So more moderate to severe disease or more long-standing disease, you know, which has been more refractory to other treatments. Next slide. Um, I think this is where we have some of our other uh, new uh, topicals will come in well, um, which we've been waiting for, and that includes topical Janus kinase uh, JAK inhibitors. So we heard, as Larry had mentioned, a bit about oral JAK inhibitors last week. Um, there are some topical JAK inhibitors um, that have made their ways along the clinical trials. And just as a recap, you know, these are important molecules. These are transmembrane molecules that are involved in signal transduction, including transmitting the sinopharm IL-4, IL-13, which are major cytokines involved in atopic dermatitis, IL-31, which is involved in the itch of AD, um, and then leading to increased um, change transcription in your inflammatory cells leading to more pro-inflammatory cytokines. So right now, there are really two, um, next slide, there are two topical JAK inhibitors um, that have gone uh, to phase two and three clinical trials. And one is uh, ruxolitimib, which is a JAK1 and 2 inhibitor, and then the other is delbocitinib, which is actually a panjac inhibitor that inhibits all four um, of the transmembrane receptors. Next slide. So topical ruxolitinib cream has been studied in two phase three randomized double-blind fecal controlled trials, and these involved individuals um, 12 years and above, so adolescents as well as adults. And this was still mild to moderate AD for at least two years and anywhere from three to 20% body surface area. If we look at the breakdown, uh, about 20% were um, adolescents, and then about a quarter had mild disease, three quarters had moderate disease. And the way the trials um, were both designed the same, um, it was two to two to one, um, meaning uh, two, uh, 40% of patients would get 0.75% ruxolimidum twice a day, another 40% got 1.5% ruxolimidum twice a day, and then the last uh, bit in the vehicle got uh, just the vehicle alone. And that was for the first uh, eight weeks. After the eight weeks was done, there is then a long-term open, uh, uh, well, open treatment study where those who got vehicle would get randomized to either of the concentrations of ruxolitimib, and those who originally got uh, active drug would continue uh, on their treatment. Next slide. 
So I'm showing mainly the data from just one of the trials, just because both had pretty similar findings um, between them. And this is the eight-week data. We don't have the long-term data yet. So again, if you're looking at the percentage of patients who uh, were considered responders, so again, they had uh, their global scores go to clear or almost clear and at least a two-grade improvement by the end of the eight weeks the ruxolitumib-treated uh, kids were between 50 and 54% did achieve that, versus vehicle was 15%. Um, if you want to try to make a comparison uh, looking at the, the crystal boral study, so if, if you remember what I said earlier for the infants, that was pretty comparable at four weeks. However, I do believe you know infants have less refractory disease, right? They haven't been treated much. If you looked at the later crystal boral studies, in those you know, who are two years and above, including adolescents, the difference between uh, active drug and vehicle was probably a, like between eight and 15% um, difference in terms of the, the responders relative to the vehicle versus here, you're talking about 35 to 40% difference. So, I mean, they're not head to head studies, but just to try to put it a little bit into perspective. If we look at those who got uh, at least a 75% improvement in their easy scores, um, that reached about 55 to 60% um, of patients uh, uh, who got active drug versus 25% um, of those who got vehicle. So overall, you know, you can see there is a difference in the decrease um, in easy score. In addition, um, they also looked at itch. So for them, success in itch was uh, a decrease in the 10-point numerical rating scale of at least four points or more. So those who got active drug, uh, uh, 40 to 52% of the subjects had achieved that much uh, decrease in itch versus only 15 and 16% of those who were treated with vehicle. Next slide. Um, the other thing to look at, so if you look at the graph on the left, is actually looked at the, the change um, in the patient reported uh, numer uh, itch numerical rating score over time. And what you'll actually see is that they've started to reach statistical significance even within the first day of starting to use the topical ruxolitumab cream relative to the vehicle. So it seemed like the, the relief from, from itch was actually you know, pretty quick early in the treatment course. And all their adverse events were also, again, mild or moderate in severity. And there weren't any adverse events that suggested that there was um, too much systemic exposure uh, to, the, to the JAK inhibitors, which is, of course is important um, as we talked about with the oral medicines last, last week. In terms of looking at some of the treatment-related adverse events, um, I think what's best you know, to kind of look at is application site burning. So if you look at vehicle, about 4% of patients reported burning, but it was less than 1% in those who had gotten active drug. Um, itch was also less at the site of application, 2.5% in vehicle, less than 1% in those who got uh, ruxolitumib um, as well. And the uh, uh, percentage of, of patients who discontinued drug was, again, um, half as many um, in those who got active drug as opposed to those who got a uh, vehicle. Next slide. So, you know, overall, I think, you know, Ruxlimim is probably the, the, the farthest along and we'll have to see where they're at in terms of approval. Um, we'll see if Larry maybe has some information um, about it. But the long-term studies are continuing to ongoing and they are doing um, have completed, I think, the PK studies for the younger kids, and they're looking at hopefully a phase three study, you know, for those less than age 12. 
The other topical JAK inhibitor that's also further along is topical delaglucidinib, 0.5% ointment. So this is actually approved already in Japan um, beginning at this year for adults with atopic dermatitis. And they in Japan had conducted um, studies, including three phase three studies. Um, one was a four-week study of treatment. Now here they were aiming for individuals with moderate to severe disease. Um, and then at least 10% up to 30% body surface um, area involved. Uh, and then there was a 24-week open-label extension as well, um, in, which, in which they did allow some topical steroids for rescue if needed. And then they also conducted a separate 52-week open-label trial of over 500 patients um, to see you know, what was the uh, effects of using this ointment. And you can look and see in the graph in, in the bottom, so I showed the, this open label. So about 50% of patients reached at least a 50% improvement in their uh, modified easy score, which they decided to do a score that didn't include, include the face in that, in that case, it was done separately. And then if you look at those who achieved at least 75%, it was close to 25% to, to of subjects. And again, most of the adverse events were mild. Um, they did see about 4.5% contact derm, a little bit of acne, as well as application site folliculitis. Um, but there was infrequent application site irritation. It was less than 2%. Um, and then no skin atrophy or telangiectasias as well. Next slide. So there, they have done one um, phase two randomized controlled trial um, for children, um, two to 15 years of age with AD. And so this was a four week study. And so they got either 0.25% delglucidinib, 0.5% delglucidinib, or vehicle. And so if you look at the graph, so if you look at the top left, which is looking at, again, at least a 50% improvement in the modified easy score, you can see there the two um, concentrations of delglucidinib did about the same. Um, if you look at 75% improvement, then you're starting to see that the 0.5% ointment did a little bit better. If you look at those who actually achieve, you know, IgA success, which again is getting to a score of zero or one with at least two grades of improvement, um, again, you're seeing uh, the 0.5% doing a bit better than the 0.25%. So I think Leo Pharma is now working uh, on this uh, formulation. In fact, they're actually looking at the cream, I think, into the United States. So we'll have to look and see in terms of the studies, um, you know, what will happen. But it looks like, you know, based on these, hopefully this will move forward as well. Next slide. Um, and this just showed some of the other uh, responses. So if you look at paritis, again, um, active treatment, you can see on the upper left did much better with the decrease in paritis versus, you know, paritis fluxed a lot with vehicle. Uh, and then also in terms of the decrease in, in paritis, you can see also was significantly significant um, with treatment compared to vehicle. And these were some of the, the um, photographs they included in the publication in terms of the, the actual changes um, seen in the skin. Next slide. So, you know, I think those are exciting in terms of, of, of another class um, that is coming, you know, hopefully soon. Uh, what else is in the pipeline? I think the other uh, molecule that's of interest is Depinarov. So this is actually a small molecule that's uh, actually produced by bacterial um, symbionts. So what it is, it's uh, mainly a topical aryl hydrocarbon receptor agonist, and this is actually the pathway by which we think uh, coal tar works um, to decrease inflammation. But in addition to seeming to inhibit some of the inflammatory pathways like interleukin-4 and STAT-6, it also looks like 
this pathway also seems to enhance actually skin barrier function and epidermal differentiation with increased levels of filigrin. So I think you know we're interested in this molecule because it may be you know both anti-inflammatory as well as hopefully helping with actual skin barrier as well. Next slide. So there has been completed a phase uh, 2B double-blind study of both um, adults and adolescents, 12 years and above. And again, this one was moderate to severe atopic dermatitis um, from 5 to 35% um, of their skin affected. And they were treated for 12 weeks and then followed for four weeks. Overall, the vast majority of the enrolled subjects um, had moderate disease, though 90% um, of them. So there isn't as much you know, data from the severe patients. Um, but still, it was, it's a good, uh, you know, group to start with. And uh, close to 40% of the subjects were adolescents. So if you look at the graph there on the right, um, the lower two is vehicle. So they had uh, tested vehicle once versus twice daily, and then 0.5% once versus applied twice daily, and then 1% once versus twice daily. And you can see by the end of the 12 weeks of treatment that mainly the 1%, whether it's once or twice daily, um, had statistical significance in terms of reaching clear, almost clear, and at least a two-grade improvement um, with it. And then overall, about 30% of those who got um, active drug had improvement of at least three points in their paritis itch scores, um, as opposed to only five and 15% seen with vehicles, so about double, double the number of patients who got vehicle experienced improvement in paritis. Next slide. So in terms of um, adverse events, here they did see a little bit of uh, folliculitis, about 5 to 7% at the sites of treatment versus vehicle didn't have it. There was one subject that got HSV infection. Um, this was with the lower strength. Um, but overall, uh, subjects did improve, and there were fewer subjects who got active drug that stopped treatment as a result of worsening um, of their atopic germ. So 4% um, stopped it versus 7% in vehicle. And overall, there was very little um, application site irritation or burning stinging reported by both the investigator on asking as well as uh, self-reported by the subjects as well. So I think in conclusions, I think, you know, we're excited to see that there are, you know, now um, more, uh, especially anti-inflammatory and for more, you know, moderate and potentially severe patients um, who, who have options that they can treat that are non-steroidals. And I think, you know, it's alluded to, and we can discuss a bit, you know, management algorithms will definitely need to be refined, but it looks like, you know, should be for the better as we'll have more options, um, especially for those more severe. Thank you. Thank you, Winnis. So I think we'll, uh, we'll move on um, now uh, for Dawn to discuss new and traditional systemics, and then we'll have more extended discussion about uh, Botox. Good evening, everyone. Today, we'll just talk about now that Winnes has reviewed topicals, uh, we'll start back at the basics and work through where we're going now. Next, please. So it's sort of like eating your vegetables. When we see patients with simple to complex atopic dermatitis, we want them to still remember the basics of skincare and not become simply mentally um, a drug dependent family or if I just use this one medicine, it's going to make all my AD uh, go away. We still want them to practice the basics. And in my mind, what that means is a sensitive skincare routine that involves bathing more rather than less and definitely using an emollient afterward because studies have shown that that helps with transepidermal water loss and it also helps uh, with regards to irritation of the skin. 
We of course need to address comorbidities and our friend Bob Gang, who's the allergist on our panel would hopefully support that as well. If somebody has other atopic disease such as asthma, allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, eosinophilic esophagitis or food allergies, et cetera, and isn't getting management of those diseases, their atopic dermatitis uh, will not settle down nearly as easily, uh, even if we're giving a traditionally appropriate medications. And then of course, we want everyone to avoid allergens. And there's kind of a different train of thought as to how to do this. You can either have them avoid the most common allergens for children, or you can do uh, official or unofficial patch testing in kids. And we'll get to that in a moment. First line therapy for all after sensitive skin care includes topical corticosteroids. And then as witness reviewed with us, the topical calcineurin inhibitors, which are technically FDA approved for children two and up, although we do believe that they are likely safe for children under two. And then the topical PDE4 inhibitors, which are FDA approved as we just heard from Winnis, uh, for children three months and older. Next, additional tools that we have in our kit if sensitive skincare alone and some topicals is not assisting with clearance of disease or good control, include official or unofficial patch testing. It does help if you have a pediatric specific patch test series based on the literature that's available that shows that the contactants are not necessarily equal and the same between adults and children based on age distribution. And then of course, the use test, which means that if you don't have patch testing available or if there's a particular chemical or component or cosmeceutical that you have concern about, you can do what's nicknamed the chief man's patch test and place a little bit of the product under occlusion for three consecutive nights and then watch to see if that develops any sort of local irritant reaction. And then we move on to the concept of phototherapy. There's official phototherapy, usually narrowband UVB, that can be done in the dermatologist's office, which of course is age and patient comfort dependent. Uh, we use phototherapy in our office commonly um, and can get down to about age three with our phototherapy nurses if the parents and patients are willing. But we can also use natural sunlight in moderation for patients who live in southern locales or during the summer in the northern areas. We can also say, you know, please get a little bit of sunlight every day, but make sure not to, to, to burn uh, just to get a, a mild tan. And whether some people consider phototherapy truly the second line therapy before you'd go to systemics, um, some insurance companies do require that. It tends to vary, at least in my patient panel, as to whose insurance recover, requires a phototherapy trial before you go to systemics or not. But oftentimes you can do home phototherapy units for people who respond to office phototherapy. And then of course we know from the recent AD guidelines and they will be updated soon in the next couple of years that there are some patients who do appropriate first-line therapy and trial narrowband UVB in the office. And unfortunately, that makes their atopic dermatitis worse rather than better, but a substantial percentage of patients do find benefit from phototherapy. Next. So beyond the basics, I just think it's important to pause when we have discussions with parents about systemics um, because I don't own a magic wand and I know my patients wish that I did, but um, there's so many psychosocial issues that go forth with taking care of a patient in a family unit that suffers from atopic disease. And we all know this because this is what we do daily in our practice, but it's important to remind them that this is more than a skin disease. It's a multi-system inflammatory disorder that really impacts the patient and their quality of life and the family unit by proxy. 
And I think it's really important to express this because parents and patients have a lot of worry, a lot of guilt, and they need validation and they need to know that you hear them and understand that. And of course, we're all very mindful to practice whole person care. I think it's important to, for patients to understand that the dermatologist is here more than just to treat the skin disease, but to address them as a patient and family unit. And we try it best based on patient age and intellectual and emotional ability and autonomy to put the patient at the center and gradually the autonomy goes more towards the child as they grow, particularly towards adolescence and less towards the parental unit. But as we know, at times that can be challenging and there are of course unique circumstances. Um, but we all know that we have patients that go through that you know, early teen year and late adolescent rebellion where they um, don't necessarily want to take care of their skin, even though psychologically they're quite embarrassed and impacted by it. And then it's no surprise to any of us that of course, caring for an atopic dermatitis patient takes a lot of time and effort on the patient and family and is also very costly. There's multiple visits to the primary care providers, to dermatologists, to allergists. Um, there's a lot of time and education that needs to go into treating atopic dermatitis because it is a chronic disease. So it's similar to having a patient with a seizure disorder or diabetes or um, asthma, where you really, it needs several sessions and lots of back and forth between the care provider and the patient and their family unit um, so that the family and the patient feel comfortable with their plan and knowing what is a flare and how do you dial up and dial down the treatment. And then, of course, there's all the logistics. You know, we can throw the kitchen sink at our patients and give them all these regimens of what to do and how often to do them and what to avoid and don't do this and do do that. And it can be quite uh, time consuming and overwhelming because work, school and just life gets in the way. And uh, we also have to worry about logistics regards, with regards to insurance coverage and prior authorization. And then of course, other things such as feasibility and palatability, because a lot of times what we do uh, doesn't feel good on the skin or perhaps it stings and burns. Next. So with regards to that, we'll do systemic therapies. Next. So really there is a paradigm shift we used to think that systemic therapies were second line therapy only after sensitive skin care and first line therapies and perhaps even phototherapy have failed. And now we're realizing with the advent of these drugs that we're now able to do things quicker, faster and sooner and not necessarily only for moderate and severe disease, but rather for other patients with atopic dermatitis. And that's really what we're going to discuss today. So really we should have a new mantra that is earlier faster, quicker, not necessarily only for generalized disease. And then we can also use these methods because they cross over on multiple atopic um, you know, inflammatory cascades about helping the patient who has comorbid disease because perhaps they could have one drug that would really improve more than one atopic disease at the same time, avoiding polypharmacy and also simplifying the regimen, which helps with compliance and also decreasing costs. And of course, anytime you start a systemic therapy, it's sort of like Accutane. The patients in my clinic who want Accutane are usually those who don't need it, and the patients who need Accutane are usually those who don't want it. And sometimes that can be said about atopic dermatitis, where some patients purely want me to put them on a systemic medicine, and then a lot of patients who need systemic medicine are fearful. So there's always um, overcoming the hump of patient and parental hesitation, and of course, um, arm wrestling insurance companies and prior authorization forms. Next. So traditional systemic therapies, which we will review, as you know, are traditionally immunosuppressive. 
they're usually thought to maintain chronic disease and oftentimes you have a drug onset timeline, then you get a drug holiday, and then when you flare again, you go back onto the drug and it's a cyclical process. There's questions with regards to when do you start treatment, and then of course, when do you stop treatment? A lot of patients end up uh, stopping treatment due to side effects or um, insurance uh, you know, expires with regards to, you know, they only give a particular time window. And then of course, the question of vaccines always come up when you give an immune suppressive drug. Do you, do you give live vaccines? Do you not? Do you delay vaccines? If you know that you'll only be on the medicine for a brief window of time, perhaps you just simply delay them. And so that's always a question. And then of course, we have to worry about the traditional things that we did with all the other um, medication coverages, which would include insurance, uh, if there's any lab monitoring required, kids don't like to have their blood drawn, the logistics of who's gonna follow all those labs and um, getting them communicated to your office. And then of course, other relevant medical history because some of the drugs that we use um, do have some contraindications to consider. Next. So the only FDA approved systemic drug that is old, of course, is systemic steroids, which as, as we know as dermatologists and allergists, we suggest not to do, and it's a big red flag. And we all know patients that I say, you know, kind of become addicted to steroids. And usually those are the patients who go through urgent care or emergency rooms with flares, they get a drug holiday, or perhaps they've had a bad asthma attack and get a drug holiday from systemic steroids. They feel temporary relief. They can't believe how good their skin looks and feels. They feel better, although they might be a little hungry and slightly irritable, um, but on a relative scale, they're doing much better. And then of course, once the systemic steroids wear off, they've dug themselves into a deeper hole than they started at. So systemic steroids, as you know, tend to be a no. Uh, the first line therapy that I use in my office with regards to what's old is methotrexate. Um, I believe it's a, a good drug for pediatric patients with a low uh, side effect profile, does require some med monitoring. It is quite slow in onset, typically about three months in time. Uh, a lot of patients can get quite nauseated and fatigued. You can try to oscillate between the oral form and the injection form to see if that helps uh, one patient versus another. A lot of my patients who do the injections tend to take them over the weekend so that way they can kind of have some downtime and um, have some rest. Also common in our practice, but less common for me personally, would be cyclosporin. I don't use it as often. I think of it as a rapid onset drug, usually working within three weeks versus three months. Um, however, it's a drug that I think of as using shorter term, four to six months, and I think of it as like a light switch. It tends to give you a very nice uh, skin holiday, so to speak, but I don't think of it as something that you um, use longer term. I think of methotrexate in that course. Then some things that I don't use today in my office and I don't think others use uh, commonly as well would include mycophenolate. It is very well tolerated typically by patients, but we wonder if it truly works. And then azothioprine requires lab monitoring and a lot of people get so much GI uh, disturbance that they're not able to tolerate the drug. And um, even though it, it helps clear their skin, they're just so miserable in their gut that they stop the treatment. Next. So of course, as we reviewed in the last module, there are focused immune suppression or rather immune modulators available on the market, including biologics, which are monoclonal antibodies, and then JAK inhibitors, which um, are non-antibody medications that work by inhibiting the dimers, as Winnis explained, that um, then stop translation of interleukins and nuclear um, transcription. 
and those include dupilumab, currently uh, approved for ages six and older, trelokinumab, currently no pediatric data on that, lubricizumab, currently in phase three trials for children 12 and older, and then of course the pediatric favorite, nemolizumab, with trials in process. And then with regards to systemic JAK inhibitors, not to be confused with the topicals that Winnis just reviewed, include abrocitinib, which is in phase three trials for children 12 years and older, apapadizumab, I can never say that word, <laughs> apadacitinib, uh, phase three trials 12 and older, and then baricitinib, phase three trials, but no current studies on children. So what do we think about when we talk about these new therapies, old versus new, and what to do for your patient? Next. It's about the right patient to the right provider at the right time with the right drug. So there's a lot of art to this um, and the science is progressing and we're probably going to shift what we're talking about now, will uh, evolve over time over the next few years with more studies. But at this time, we need to think about such things as what do we do for the localized disease patient? What do we do for patients with multiple atopic comorbidities? What about the duration of treatment? How long do we use these new drugs? And then uh, safety profiles, we all know of drugs that have come out and are deemed to be safe, but then once thousands of people use them more readily, there are less common side effects and sometimes they can be quite averse um, that come out and become evident with time. And then of course speed, some drugs will work faster than others and it's very hard to be patient when you're inflamed and uncomfortable. So we always talk about the atopic march. Bob reviewed very nicely in module one, as we are all familiar that usually when a patient has multiple atopic comorbidities, the skin disease comes first, followed by the food allergy and then environmental allergies. So when we think about drugs and the therapies to approach the patient, do we think about it as a therapeutic march where we would start with sensitive skincare and the basics always, and do we you know, feel obliged perhaps to go through first line therapies with topicals plus minus phototherapy? And do we feel obliged to try something old such as methotrexate or cyclosporin before we trial something new? If insurance and prior auth weren't in the way, would we go straight to something new? And then if we think about the new drugs, do we start off with the you know, inflammatory um, anti-IL-4 and 13 inhibitors or for patients that have worse itch, do we start with the IL-31 inhibitors? These are questions that we still have today. Next. So here we're gonna open up to our panel discussion and kind of chew on the art versus science of these drugs and what we know now. Firstly, the topics of localized disease. Are there certain drugs or mechanisms that you would use first for the isolated AD patient, most commonly the face, the genitalia, or perhaps localized to the hands and feet? Bob, do you want to make some comments about the quick discussion that we had on systemics now and how you approach a severe patient when you see them first referred to allergy? Do you, how much are you, do you oblige to go through steps? Do you consider the older systemics or how do you handle that? Well, I think that um, I am very excited about all the different targeted precision medicine that have been introduced in, in, um, among all the panelists here in the various discussions between um, the biologics uh, to the systemic jacks and the topical jacks. I think that the future of atopic dermatitis is going to be in precision medicine targeted therapies. Um, as an immunologist, I'm um, very weary about the use of some of the traditional uh, systemic therapies, the more nonspecific ones, primarily because 
we're very uh, aware of secondary immune deficiency. In fact, I can't um, really talk out of one side of my mouth by it because I also run uh, uh, a secondary immune deficiency um, surveillance program for a lot of our um, uh, solid organ transplants uh, and, and, and hematology, oncology, and rheumatology colleagues who send patients to me when they put patients on methotrexate and uh, cyclosporine and end up leading to secondary immune deficiency and I'm managing those and on the other hand saying, hey, I'm going to start handing that out, uh, these things for other conditions that I treat. So um, I'm very uh, excited about the fact that we do have uh, dupilumab right now and I'm also um, even more excited about some of the oral systemics that are coming out that, that are also targeted. Um, from the standpoint of looking at the systemics, I mean, I do, as an allergist, uh, want to look at the allergic comorbidities because well, let's, I think... Let's hold, let's hold on that for a second because we okay. do have a, a list of them coming up on the next slide. Sure. So I will, yeah. I will come back to this just so we don't lose this. So right. there's regional... So I'll come back to the, general, the questions on the slide is... Does regional, do regional dermatitis influence your selection? If someone has a lot of facial dermatitis, you know, I guess the question is more projecting out, it's a year from now. <laughs> um, is it going to change how we approach it if we start to get other new systemics beyond dupilumab? Um, so for facial, hand, or genital, will that influence selection? So the hand dermatitis, I'll just say that, you know, there's, so delgacinib is being developed for hand dermatitis, particularly as well as for atopic dermatitis. So um, the, the topical, you know, the question of how the topicals are going to kick in for that, and that's going to be enough to handle a certain percentage of patients. Um, I think hand eczema, remember there's chronic hand eczema that's not atopic dermatitis related, though I think the younger you get, um, the more that hand dermatitis is atopic dermatitis associated, though sometimes with patients who had atopic dermatitis but may not be active other than their hands or hands and feet, and others where it's just part of the atopic dermatitis, and we hope to collect some data on that. We'll be discussing that at the Pedra Inflammatory Group meeting in, uh, I guess, uh, in a few weeks. But facial dermatitis, does that move anyone at this point? Do you think it'll move us in a year, or what's people's sense? I, I personally think it will because these three areas I think of as quality of life dermatitis issues, just like I think of the patient who has generalized pruritus without much rash but is truly um, miserable in their itch. And I think we'll have a lower threshold for using systemics um, because I think it really impacts quality of life, similarly to how we think of psoriasis treatment in children who have isolated psoriasis to the face of the genitalia. I'd be more comfortable, I think, with biologics, I guess. And like you said, I think you can make the steps easier to be systemics relative to the traditional ones, you know, because they're less immunosuppressive. I am a little bit unsure yet about, like, would I jump to JAK inhibitors since they are a little bit more broad, albeit we haven't seen huge safety issues, but I guess I do worry they, they work a little bit more broadly. Yeah, this, this slide is in honor of Bob and my husband who's a rheumatologist, so all those other inflammatory diseases that excite them so much. Um, you know, what will we do with regards to comorbidities? So as we know, it's, you know, not uncommon for our atopic dermatitis patients to have all sorts of comorbidities, all of which are listed on the screen, including some that we don't necessarily always think about, including JIA and also, you know, cardiovascular uh, diseases and consequences thereof. And then, of course, the question of what do you do about the patients that have horrible conjunctivitis if it's chronic and refractory? I can say an anecdotal evidence that I've had 
the patients on dupilumab that I share with allergy who have NGI, who have EOE, have been the greatest improved with regards to their atopic dermatitis and quality of life in general, as well as their um, GI disease when taking dupilumab. And they've been um, very responsive to treatment. And I don't believe in my panel that I have a patient with bad EOE and atopic derm on dupilumab who has not responded. Um, they tend to be my happiest dupilumab patients. And, and, and Dawn, uh... Uh, really, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you had this slide because, you know, uh, Larry and I have a joint multidisciplinary AD uh, clinic and really, I mean, one of the patients that we're bringing in for a testimonial actual, uh, video actually has EOE as well. And this, uh, this young woman, I mean, responded beautifully to dupilumab. And that's kind of the way I sort of look at this comorbidities, because I think in the absence of really good biomarkers, we really kind of have to look at these comorbidities as almost a clinical biomarker in predicting sort of endotypes and response. So I would say that for the patients you have um, asthma and urticaria, EOE, and I mean, some of the, and even chronic sinusitis or, or, or polyposis. I mean, we've had some other patients with nasopolysis as well. And these, I would um, characterize them as having very high T2 signature, and they may do very well on the T2 biologics, as opposed to the ones with psoriasis, IBD, and JIA, which have more perhaps of a T1 signature and T17 signature. And some of those, I mean, with a T1 signature, perhaps using the JAK inhibitors, perhaps um, would probably be more effective in, in looking at some of those patients. So, so I think that, I mean, these, bio, uh, these comorbidities allow us to have a clinical biomarker to kind of decide on the course of systemic therapy. Does conjunctivitis keep people off of, so first of all, so right, CIL-413 dupilumab, um, um, you know, has conjunctivitis with it. The rates in kids are about the same as adults. I've definitely had patients who I was worried about putting them on it because of a history of significant conjunctivitis who did fine with it, uh, um, with, uh, with dupilumab. The IL-13s, you know, people were wondering if we could get around conjunctivitis. I don't think you get around them, though the rates in the studies so far have been lower. That you know, Lepri hasn't weighed in yet, so they were only in phase two. Leprikizumab, Trelokizumab had some conjunctivitis, but generally lower rates than dupilumab, but we'll sort of have to play that out into, into practice and longer-term studies to be certain about that. I do have a comment to make on the, on the, uh, the conjunctivitis part. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of people who have various theories about why there's conjunctivitis. Some people believe that has to do with the fact that some of these patients may have pretty significant eyelid uh, dermatitis and people are rubbing. But I also think it has to do with the actual mechanism. I think one of the ways that IL-4 and 13 blockade works is that it dries things up in other places. I mean, in the upper airways and lower airways. And when you're talking about the airways, drying things up may be better. But you know, when you're talking about the eyes, drying things up may not be so good. So, I mean, decreasing mucus secretion in the eyes may, may lead to some, um, um, some deleterious effects. And I think that that, through that mechanism, is probably going to have some inherent degree of exacerbating conjunctivitis. 
Yeah, and probably, you know, there have been uh, biopsy studies that were done that showed goblet cell depletion. And, right. And I, I don't think that's expected from JAK inhibitors, nor has there been no. a signal of conjunctivitis beyond the baseline conjunctivitis rates that are in the population in, in exactly. the uh, to date, at least in, right. in my read. Um, you want to go to the next slide and discuss? Um, yes, absolutely. So next, please. This is a question that I th think about um, because we have so much quality of life issues with patients with atopic dermatitis and we know that they have increased issues with depression and anxiety and sometimes hyperactivity. Do we really know what these um, systemic medicines do with regards to mental health comorbidities, um, cause and effect? Is there an impact at all? I mean, I know well, that- What do you think? I mean, we know, we know what the adult studies they did, you know, they did the HADS index, the hospital anxiety depression index, and you can see marked improvement. You know, clinical experience, I had incredibly, um, depressed patients who like come in like incredibly happy and they tell you you know I, I query that they're like in a different world now with systemic therapies you know especially with right. which has been which is so well tolerated but if, but if that's people's experience we should say that yeah yeah I think of it as like acne in my Accutane patients when you look better and you, you feel better and your quality of life improves your mental health also does the same I'm just not sure at this point in the peds patients that we have any specific data it's more clinical um, you know antidotes and I'm very glad to note that I have not had any patients get worse on systemic medicines when their skin disease improves. No, it's a good point because of course the you know we as we go to the research questions the question of when to intervene. Let's be just, I think we're all wrestling with how are we changing our treatment, both our use of systemics in general, as well as traditional versus new. And then how is that going to be different when we get, when we get an agents that can be used differently, don't necessarily require longer term use. Um, um, and, um, and the age of, you know, how, how, liber how more liberal should we be in using systemic therapy if we think we can alter the mental health course of individuals. Those are the sort of longitudinal studies that, you know, we have to discuss, you know, what's the best way to get that data. Is it gonna be from non-specific registries in the disease state that we have going? Does it need to be drug-based registry or there need to be just larger investments into longitudinal cohort studies? I do want to make another comment about this because one thing about mental health comorbidities is that I mean, these patients, I mean, once they get horrifically depressed, their adherence is also going to drop. So if we're asking somebody horrifically depressed to put on, I mean, a topical agent twice a day, making sure they're taking bleach bath twice a week and moisturizing a minimum twice a day, I just don't know if, if, if really we can, I mean, if how you can motivate someone who's uh, horrifically depressed to be doing all those things with minimal results. And I think that um, that's one of the other considerations that we do need to uh, take, take account of when we think about putting, we may need to have a lower threshold to start uh, targeted therapies for these people because they may not be adherent enough to really comply with all the things we need them to do from a topical basis. Yeah, I think also the, um, so yes, one of the comorbidities we recognize, right, is the family impact of the disease. 
You know, so now we're starting to do the DFI, the Durham family index, uh, dermatitis family index in some of the studies. And, and that's another thing that may rationalize us getting more aggressive early because, you know, the first few years of life, we, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of impact with individuals living there. The family lives around the disease state. So I guess that's I'm not, the, I'm not aware of any studies doing like the Columbia suicide scale, you know, scale and detecting depression as they do for psoriasis drugs, right? Are you aware of that, Larry? I don't think we, they yeah, studied no. that to that extent, you know, which would yeah. actually be in yeah. hindsight good, less for risk, but they have the data to show improvement. Why don't we move to the next slide, but I am going to take a little bit of a detour because the next slide just sort of talks about mixing and matching. Uh, oh no, back one, I'm sorry, there should be which treatment to choose. Okay, there we go. That's, uh, yeah, this one, yeah. Um, um, and, and the timing of drug. But before we get to that, there's several questions that came in with us on topicals that I think are worth uh, uh, bringing to the group. So one is the question about systemic absorption with topical jacks. So from the studies thus far, like the ones we mentioned, they found very low levels um, of, of, of drug in blood. So they weren't felt to be, be um, effective, uh, affecting it. I will say lab-wise, they didn't see any major changes in cell counts. The data that I haven't seen yet for the younger kids, which I know FDA was looking at, is that they were looking at bone markers because there was, you know, based on animal studies, a question about whether there might be increased bone turnover. So that I have to say, I haven't seen um, a lot of data yet to see, but uh, there's been, there's been no data that has halted the trials, I guess would be, they've continued on uh, enough. But you should rec from a pediatric standpoint, you should recognize that the trials for uh, topical rocks limited BSA That's to 20% because I think they were concerned and we haven't seen the full PK data set from that. So there's been no lab abnormalities or clinical abnormalities, but that is an issue of whether they're, you know, we have to be protective in body surface area because they're worried about the, you know, what the effects of absorption can be. And there's also the question of the label, right? Because systemic jacks have, a, have, have labels associated with them for the other indications and whether a topical would do that or not is an issue. <laughs> the other question, Winnis, is about um, have they looked at um, um, an analysis on facial disease either in terms of tolerance or other, uh, or I'd say, or efficacy or adverse events in these drugs or not. They did facial disease, I think, for delgocitinib, and I think it mirrored what they found for overall in terms of efficacy. I'm not sure that they parsed out, though, um, AEs by body surface area, uh, body location. So, so remember that what happened with, with Crisoboral is, is that it was so long ago, believe it or not, even it wasn't that long, but in the history of atopic dermatitis, that the harmonization of measures of eczema group hadn't weighed in in time about what the core outcomes would be. So that when they did the crisoboral studies, they didn't do an easy score. They didn't do a score ad. Their sense was all they needed was an IgA. And that's what they did. And they did a localized, you know, a little local um, um, tolerance and local uh, signs and symptoms, but they didn't do the formal easy scores. Once you get the formal easy scores, then it's easy because you can look at the facial subgroup, at least in terms of efficacy, because that's one of the, you know, head and neck gets, uh, gets uh, specifically uh, tested. And um, they hadn't done that previously, though in the infant study, they did include easy scores, just the difference in the timing and the timing of the study. Okay. Um, and 
Bob Silverman saying, Jacks don't seem to be too specific. Don't they affect keratinocytes, endothelial cells, Langerhans cells, and fibroblasts? And I guess, um, yeah, but of course, Jacks are like, they're a panoply of different Jacks and combination of, of the, the different Jack receptors that mediate different subgroups of, of both cells and the cytokines. So, which brings us, I think, to the question of, um, stop, start, biologics versus jacks. So um, I have to say I'm, I'm, my psychology fits with that question. Um, I said last week that when I start dupilumab, I sort of tell patients we'll do it for a year and then we'll talk about the second year. And then it's not an expectation that we're just gonna do it for a few months. And that's partially because of my concern about stopping and starting and anti-drug antibodies, even though the data on anti-drug antibodies with dupilumab's pretty good compared to most of the psoriasis biologics. Um, and, the, and the jacks won't have that limitation, you know, they're oral and they're small molecules. Um, but when, if you have any input on, on oral jacks and your sense of how they may, how you might use them differently, or it's just too early to know? I, it's a little early, but I mean, just based on, you know, seeing for other inflammatory diseases and from alopecia and I mean, I do think a little bit, obviously we're in a pandemic too, I do think a little bit about keeping people on jacks long term. I mean, I think I'd probably be, be comfortable, get them better over, you know, nine to 12 months, but I might, I might move them faster back to try to get to, you know, topicals, hopefully more efficient topicals, you know, about yeah. sooner than I would with a biologic, which I'm more comfortable doing up to a few years, you know, if needed. So we, we, yeah, so we showed that. the oral data last week, right? And, and you know, so, um, Abrastinid, so Eupinacidinib, we just don't have the official data yet, but we just know it's really strong. <laughs> Abrastinib, we've seen the data. Remember, they have a separate team study, so that'll influence the pedsterm world when that comes out as well. So it's pretty quick. And, um, you know, in that population study, it drove them to higher levels of higher, you know, improved easy scores. Of course, it's not, not head to head, but... Um, and it's quick and very quick for pruritus. So it's going to be really interesting to see how we, how we make our decisions depending upon really how we educate the patients and how they come to their choice. I think the comorbidities will matter, what patients' expectations are in terms of in injections versus orals. Um, with so Larry, I, I, I do have a question. So, I mean, given the, the rapidity of how fast the jacks can work and, and without the concern of immunogenicity, I mean, maybe, I mean, I, I mean, this is probably, I mean, this is a discussion off label from what it's going to be approved for, but I mean, short term use, I mean, to get people over a hump, I mean, a month or two, I mean, to get people over a hump, like, especially since, I mean, there's going to be variability um, in the course of AD uh, throughout the year in some, in some patients. Yeah, but it'll be really interesting to see then if, if you do that, or are you going to be able to do, you're going to be able to do preformed tapering dose, and then moving people into aggressive topicals, because at least with some of the medications, like the UPA data looks like there's a lot of quick rebound. Mm -hmm. So, so more like cyclosporin, um, and if that's the case, we just need to make sure we manage that part of the, uh, uh, you know, that part of the treatment. But I do think, yeah, that'll be the, and then we have down balancing safety versus rapidity because long-term jacks 
they'll have a label of malignancy and other stuff, whether it's significant enough. But, you know, remember, the dermatology population generally comes at this without a lot of other systemic meds as compared to the rheumatoid arthritis population that have been through a variety of cytostatics and more aggressive immunosuppressives. So some of their the data sets are more worrisome in terms of malignancy and stuff. It's, and same, we've had the same thing with psoriasis, right? There's very little, you know, bad stuff that's come out of the psoriasis extended experience, but they've generally not been on the history of meds that the RA patients had. And then there's the con concept of perhaps combinations. I mean, if, if Dupi is able to get you, or the biologic is able to get you 40%, 50% well, I mean, can we potentially add on a JAP to that? And I mean, yeah. and, um, and, and the impact on that, I mean, may yeah. be interesting too. And then nemolizumab was mentioned, Don um, said it was the favorite, but I think he thinks it's the favorite because of the Nemo name, not yes. because <laughs> it's, just, it's a cute pediatric name. <laughs> and um, how that will fit in, and you know, that, that which is, um, I think something that we'll see as they do their, as they do their, as they do their peak studies. Don, you think we're ready to move on to sort of yeah, absolutely. So really um, deep thoughts by Dawn Davis of what I think is next in the pipeline and questions that I um, think of when I think of these concerns and I'd be happy to hear others next. Um, so with regards to pediatric AD research and just peds research in general, thanks to PEDRA and uh, others, we are definitely accelerating the amount of pediatric uh, dermatology research and pediatric research in general, and I think that's wonderful. Um, we still have a very long way to go with regards to the diseases we care for, and we still have to do a lot of catching up relative to our adult colleagues. Um, of course, with this comes physician effort and participation because this takes time and infrastructure, um, which a lot of practices don't have, um, the resources that is required to really be successful in this realm. So there's some infrastructure things we need in addition to enthusiasm and uh, participation. Next. But with regards to topics, you know, um, do we use this for just a single disease or do we do a combined diseases? So we need studies on that. And then how do we expand it to our other allergic armamentariums that Bob is an expert in like hives, polyposis patients, EOE patients. So we need a lot of combo studies. And then what do we do about those patients that have isolated atopic dermatitis? Uh, they're a special type of cohort in my mind. If you have only isolated hand foot disease or for example, face only or genital only disease. And then I query, even though um, it is a different mechanism, is there a role for any of these drugs in food allergy, either um, you know, prevention or prophylaxis um, or for comorbidities with our food allergy patients? So Bob, as our resident allergist, I don't know if you have any thoughts. I do have a few comments on that. Top? Yes, please. I'm really glad that you mentioned the last part here because um, dupilumab is currently on, in phase two for food allergy. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so people are looking into this. I think that um, there's also um, a care in the dose group in Stanford is also looking at using um, uh, omalizumab for uh, multi-food desensitizations. But I think, I mean, directly from a treatment of food allergy standpoint, how that impacts AD, I think that's also really interesting because I, I mean, the common adage is that once the AD uh, gets better, then 
the sensitization level should fall. And we're actually collecting this data in our multidisciplinary clinic with Larry to see whether that can hold true, trying to correlate the easy score decreases with the sensitization changes. Um, but I think that, interestingly, I'm also asking uh, Immune, because um, they, they're the ones with the peanut, um, uh, the peanut desensitization, the only uh, um, uh, FDA-approved peanuts desensitization drug. And uh, what I've, they've collected AD data, they have not examined it. So one of the things I've asked them to do is actually to go back and look at the data to see whether the AD, any of the markers of um, um, uh, quantifications or metrics they use, actually changed over time throughout the, the, the course of their trial to see whether in an inadvertent effect, the AD for the patients who had it as a comorbidity actually also improved with the desensitization to peanuts. So that'll be really interesting to see. They have not looked at cut the data like that yet. And uh, they said that they, they are willing to look at that. So I mean that we may have uh, some answer to this question um, sooner rather than later. And then Bob, can you clarify? Question on whether for the food allergy studies, are they testing clinical improvement? And food allergies, skin testing, or what are they? So they're actually looking at challenge studies. They're actually, they doing, yeah, so the, these are high risk studies. Basically, they're giving, they're taking people who definitely have food allergies to these foods and then doing, uh, doing challenges, graded uh, oral challenges. So, I mean, if there's any, I mean, potential, if we look at the environmental allergen side, I mean, if you know, there are various studies with, um, adult patients with dust mite driven AD with score aggregated than 45 randomized control studies have shown that in those patients, allergen desensitization uh, led to uh, clinical improvement in AD um, from a score ad standpoint. I mean, if we think that if we take the corollary, I mean, perhaps we, we may be able to see that same type of result in kids in, um, in food desensitization. It's too early to tell right now, but I mean, I think it is important to take a look at that data. Yeah, that was my question for you, Bob, is, is the study looking at desensitization and the safety thereof or exposure prophylaxis to prevent anaphylaxis or both? So it's really going to be prevention of anaphylaxis. They're not going to, I mean, it's not out to let, let people go and eat a peanut butter jelly sandwich. I mean, it's really if they have accidental exposure to prevent um, uh, the development of anaphylaxis, which is one of the main reasons why it's highly criticized and a lot of uh, people in my field are very skeptical about the adoption of it, um, and, um, but I think that uh, it's, it's, it's a step towards the right direction, and I think it's, um, and I'm curious to see what the impact is on, um, on, on other comorbidities such as AD. And then wanna, next, so oh, sorry. One question, Don, which, so, you know, we haven't wrestled with the methotrexate question, so we still get, you know, I, I write for dupilumab for a patient, I get it, they haven't tried methotrexate. And I actually fight that. I just go right at it and Me try too. to get on the phone with the medical director. Um, you know, there was a, that paper came out uh, last year on psoriasis, the Bronker's, uh, a Bronker's paper where they, they put together a group of uh, patients treated with methotrexate and psoriasis and compared their outcomes to biologics. It was like any biologic that they used and showed that the improvement level was much better with the, with the biologics. And those were probably mostly first generation, you know, TNFs. So I don't know if we're going to be able to get comparative data like that. I mean, the U.S. is usually traditionally miserable 
at doing prospective um, comparison studies because they don't require them for, for drugs, but it would be useful for us to do that. But is, does everyone, does anyone just say, yeah, I'll go through methotrexate automatically or do they, do they fight it right now? Well, I don't know. You may be better at fighting it than I'm by fighting it. <laughs> I try to fight it. I don't know if it's why I, I, I do have some that I, I have to put on something first before it, but you may be better at, you may be better at fighting them than I am. I think in our region, we've been lucky. We haven't had to do as much fighting. Um, okay. so, so hopefully. It's hard in Southern California. So I mean, uh, Bob and I are, are, are fortunate because if they come to the multidisciplinary atopic germ program, you know, it's like two hour visits where they're getting like all these PROs and easy scores, da, 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 da. And it's, it's like, you know, we list nine people there who said that they should get the medicine. So it's a little easier. We have to argue with the. I mean, we have clinical pharmacists and you have Larry and I sitting there for a whole morning seeing five people. So, I mean, yes, you know, we can... yeah. <laughs> not our usual, usual log. Okay. So that's, that's a good question. And the other question, of course, is, is how do we contribute to the data on early treatment and the, and how it's going to, how it's going to change the course. That's one. And then I think later on, you have the question of the phenotype. So we have a, yes. we have a PEDRA. On this slide, we say hand eczema. We'll discuss that at the PEDRA inflammatory skin disease group because we have a, both a survey and a potential perspective study on categorizing hand eczema that we want to do. Um, when it comes to the phenotyping studies in place, but the question of translating phenotyping to can we figure out who the super responders are for the different medicines? So. So on the next slide, please, more deep thoughts. Um, you know, where else can we use these medicines? I've found some patients, I remember the first patient I used Dupilumab on uh, with guidance from Tony Mancini uh, was a patient with really bad generalized paritis and prognigillaris who did quite well on Dupilumab. And now I'm, I'm much more likely to pull the trigger now on my atopics who itch more than they rash. Um, and most of them get a lot of benefit from that. Um, is there crossover into the other Th1 diseases like we had discussed earlier? What about other Th2 diseases like AA? Um, what about immunobolus disease? Um, there's been some thoughts, of course, in the literature in adults. Um, you know, is this helpful for bolus pemphigoid? Um, there's been a report of a bolus pemphigoid patient taking dupilumab with success, but then developing CTCL. Um, there's also been reports of, well, maybe this could help CTCL patients. So perhaps it's patient dependent. Um, and then next, please. Then other concerns or considerations would be phenotype variation, as Larry had mentioned earlier. I think there's definitely relevance with quality of life studies, uh, particularly with mental health, but also with sleep hygiene, because I feel like sleep hygiene kind of rules the world, especially in a pandemic where we're all virtual. And then we don't know much about length of use. We don't know much about antibody development. And do we stop cold turkey versus wean? And if we restart, at what point do you have to double the dose of dupey again or not? Um, is there antibody formation in dupey? Not as much as with other drugs that we know of at this point. And then topical formulations, uh, please. Everyone always asks about topical JAK inhibitors, particularly my AA patients, but I was very thankful to learn from Winnis today about topical JAK inhibitors, but um, what other, you know, will biologics be topical? Who knows, so. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, one of the ways that, I mean, like, um, 
that uh, one of the food allergen desensitization studies uh, is using an epicutaneous patch and it's allowing them the delivery of large proteins through this uh, through the skin. So if you can, I mean, and what's in hit, uh, preventing the delivery of biologics through the skin is because it's the transport of these large proteins across across the skin. But I mean, if there's other technologies that allow that kind of uh, transport across the skin, I mean, you can you can potentially have topical formulations of biologics, and which will be really exciting. But I mean, I think um, the technology is probably not currently there yet. Yeah, I think we're going to have different drug delivery methodologies other than just the it's going to cream and ointment and you put it on. And I think that um, that may drive, especially Galapisha areata, which it's getting the topicals have had a problem getting getting into the follicles and rid of the follicles and not just into the bloodstream. So that may be something potential. I do want to make one comment about the sleep hygiene because if we want to make sure that people aren't falling over and sleeping. Uh, I mean, we, I know that a lot of people like to use hydroxyzine and a lot, but I mean, and, it, and in the right times, I mean, at nighttime, I mean, it's fine, but to use hydroxyzine round the clock, I mean, do a real disservice um, from a sleep hygiene perspective. So we've really, in, in allergy, tried to move over to the second generation antihistamines. I mean, we prefer using things like cetirizine far more because we're not really um, making people uh, extremely drowsy or having to dose them frequently after that. So, and there's an increasing amount of data, uh, especially in the, in the elderly population that first-generation antihistamines may not necessarily be great from, um, uh, from a cognitive standpoint. So there's issues from uh, the, the aging brain. There may be also issues from a developing brain. So um, we're trying to move away from using more of the, the, um, the first-generation antihistamines. Um, you know, we, there's plenty to discuss. I think every few months we're going to be getting more data out on some of the new drugs, and we'll be living through these issues of, of how we how we use drugs, when we use them, which are the patients, what are the factors that influence that. I thank the panel. Great job today. Great, great talks, uh, Dawn and Winnis. Thank Mike Siegel, Jen Dawson, and the rest of the PEDRA group for getting everything together and uh, smooth, uh, smooth technical uh, work as well and for uh, helping us to put together the series.